Well, grab a seat, and as you do, my name is Todd Berkey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I get to work with Junction, which that just warmed my heart as they were lighting the candles here, and when they said, hey, we're Junction, and like, I was startled by the excitement and support there, so that's, that's, that's great. Uh, it's really wonderful to be here with y'all eight days before Christmas, which is crazy to think about. I don't know how your family operates, um, if you are a list family or not a list family. Uh, I know in our family growing up, we made Christmas lists. We, we wanted to have clear communication. Uh, just so everybody knew, like, these are the things that we're hoping for, and our lists were long, but it still allowed for people to surprise you uh, along the way. And my parents, they always did a great job of making Christmas special. Um, they found ways to surprise us with stuff off of our Christmas list, whether it was wrapped differently or they just found things that were near impossible. I think one year uh, I wanted a, a G.I. Joe action figure named Snake Eyes, and he was sold out everywhere. And this is no internet. This is, you know, you're not able to, to do that. And so they tracked down 12 different Toys R Us stores. They would go in, they'd call, and eventually they made that happen, which was just Pretty, pretty cool. Or if it wasn't that, there was a year that I really wanted a, a dirt bike, a motorcycle, on-off-road thing, and I thought there's just no way that could ever happen, and yet they found one that was as old as me, uh, but they found one uh, for Christmas morning, just a special, special time. I remember also a five-second anti-skip CD player portable, you know, like for those of you who don't know, that CDs were before that we have now, and if you jarred it at all, it, would, it didn't know what to do, but they came out with this thing, anti-skip, so for like five seconds, you could move it around without it skipping, and, and so just really special times all the way through, throughout, and so uh, Christmas was exciting for, for many reasons, but I remember I was, I was up in Iowa, and I was home for Christmas and that year, I remember what I wanted. I only wanted two things that year. I was in college. I was playing tennis. After practice, all the tennis guys would go eat together in the dorms, and I had to go back to my apartment. And I thought, you know, it would be really convenient to have a meal plan, just, just four meals a week, uh, so I could go eat with the guys, uh, save some time. It would be great for, for uh, fellowship. And then it's, it's food. It's reasonable. It's logic. It's not outlandish. And then my 87 Pontiac Sunbird with the turbo had blown out a fog light on the driver's side. And I thought, man, it would be great to have a fog light that worked uh, to help out with the fog there in the northern Iowa regions. And that was pretty much my list, right? And so I'm excited for a meal plan and a fog light, and I just can't wait for Christmas morning. Like, how are they going to wrap this up? Like, this is going to be incredible, like, awesome and amazing. And Christmas morning came. We, we got up early, came down, and opened the gifts. And what was not there? Not a meal plan and not a fog light. I don't know what I got, but it was not a meal plan and not a fog light. And that was confusing for me. It was confusing because, you know, this, this history of always these, these incredible surprises that were there, and here I was, I asked for something that was reasonable, logical, my grades were good, I was making wise choices, I was taking ownership of my faith, I was serving in different places of my own free will. I'm like, I'm doing everything right, and this logical, reasonable thing that you want for me, you want food and safety for me. Why would you not give that to me? And I was just puzzled and perplexed and maybe even a little disgruntled. And I share that 
painful memory. It wasn't painful, but I shared that painful time with you, that confusing times, because sometimes we feel that way when it comes to our prayers and our lives with Jesus. You know, we make wise choices, we engage with him positively, and then we ask for reasonable things, actually things that are in step with who he is. We, we ask him for like maybe a restoration in, in a friendship that's, that's just been tension. We ask for maybe health for others. We pray just faithfully for a loved one to come and know Christ. We ask for a job. We're asking for marriage and we're asking for kids. All these things are in step with who God is. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God who, who wants to see us engage in a possible, possible, positive way with our, our coworkers. And, and we sit there and we go, I'm just puzzled by this. Does it make sense? There's this confusion. I'm doing everything right. So this morning, what I want us to do is I, I want us just to, we're going to look in Luke chapter 1, and as we do, we're going to have the big idea is simply this, is that God hears puzzled people's prayers. That's kind of hard to say three times fast, but God hears puzzled people's prayers. And uh, we're going to look here in, in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see some people who were feeling discouraged, and we know they're feeling that way because we'll look in the text here that they were feeling a little bit like their prayers were being ignored, even though they were good requests and even though they were doing the right things. And yet the reality is what we're going to see is that God not only hears those prayers, but um, rarely, if ever, does God answer how we want and when we want. And we're going to see some really pretty cool things. I hope you can find encouragement about how to even live in those times where we're perplexed and confused. And so our plan is pretty simple this morning. Lots of peas here. We'll look at the puzzled people. Why were they puzzled? We're going to look at their prayers. What, what, what were they praying? And how we, God hears. And how does he respond actually with that? So let's go into the puzzled people portion of it. Wow, that's a lot of peas. And uh, for those of you who, who are, aren't maybe as familiar with the Gospel of Luke, Luke is actually written to a puzzled person. His name is Theophilus. His name means friend of God. And uh, Luke is writing to this puzzled person, uh, and he has a purpose. Boy, there are peas everywhere, aren't they? Read with me here in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse I will back up a little bit here. In the verse 3, it seemed fitting to me, since everybody else is writing these things and there's all these eyewitnesses that are around there and everybody else is telling us about what Jesus has done. Verse 3, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly manner. Most excellent Theophilus, you friend of God, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught, that you may be certain, not just head knowledge, but you can know-know, like you can know deep down that the things you've heard about Jesus are, are right, they're, they're true. And while we don't know much about Theophilus, we know the purpose is for reassurance, to, to give him certainty about his faith. We do know that the time when he is writing that there is a whole bunch of crazy things going on. People who were Christ followers were starting to see distance in their families. They were seeing distance in their friendships. They were being persecuted. They didn't fit with the nation of Israel. They were kicked out there. The Romans didn't like them. And so instead of having this incredible, beautiful experience where everything is going great, it seemed like everything was going wrong. They were being mocked for following a crucified leader. And in the middle of that, of looking around at the world, Theophilus, it seems like he's going like, man, is this even worth continuing to make a stand with Jesus as I see people losing their lives over this? 
Is it worth it? This makes no sense to me. If, if God is who he says he is and Jesus is who he says he is, why is all this happening? Is it worth continuing on? And so what a great friend, Luke, a physician, a frequent traveler with Paul, that he has a friend who's wondering, is it worth it? He goes and investigates, and he writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Let me put that in a better perspective. He writes 20, over 27% of the New Testament for the purpose of reassuring Theophilus that God and Christ are worth following. What an incredible friend. He doesn't rebuke him and just say, like, you shouldn't struggle, get over with it. He says, no, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out, I'm going to investigate, I'm going to write out an orderly account. I'm going to name dates and places and people and things so you can know these are accurate things, accurate events, other people's stories, so that you can know that you can trust these things that he is worth living for. And if you want to check me, you can. That's why I'm giving you so many names and so many places. And so what an incredible incredible friend who was willing to do that, not to shame him in that time that he was struggling and he's being puzzled or perplexed. Luke actually had seen that same question before. Uh, Demas, if you're familiar with him, if you're not, that's fine. He's also mentioned a few times in Scripture. In Philemon 24, Paul is writing and he says this. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you as do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker, they're mentioned there together. They're all together. In Colossians 4.14, Paul is writing, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings as well as Demas does also. So you have this guy, Demas, who is hanging out with Paul. He's seen these incredible things happen. And yet it seems like he was struggling because as we read at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul is writing, he says, for Demas, he loved this present world and he's deserted me. And he's gone on to Thessalonica. Only Luke is here with me. And so you just see this. Luke is going like, I've seen this before. I, we don't need to rebuke. I need to remind you. And so he moves in. Wouldn't it be great if we all had friends that those moments that we were struggling that would say, hey, 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 I'm not going to rebuke you for that. I'm going to come alongside of you and we're going to walk together. Wouldn't that be great if we had friends around us who would give us that? And that's what we're called to do. And I think it's really encouraging because the number of people that I, that I speak with who are like, man, they feel embarrassed and ashamed that they are struggling because they're in their moments of puzzlement, if you will, they're just like, is it okay to even be in this space? And to go, you know what? 27% of the Bible, of the New Testament, was written for somebody just like you. God doesn't hate you for being in this place. He's not mad at you. Can I just remind you? Can we, can we walk together to remind you of the incredible things that Jesus has done and that he is worthy of our life? And so knowing that little bit of background, I find this, and I hope you find this kind of cool too, just how, how Scripture works. The very first story, the very first event that Luke is going to tell this puzzled person who's thinking, is it worth going on, is about Zechariah and Elizabeth, who we're going to see are very puzzled people because God is not working how they thought. 
Isn't that cool that he would choose the very first story of somebody just like you? And if you were to study through the Gospel of Luke, you'd see the very last story when he's not dealing, right before he deals with the disciples, he comes there and there's the walk to Emmaus and he has people who just like, they're unaware that they're walking with Jesus. He was with them the entire time. It's very interesting that he would take this entire book and go, look, at the beginning to the end, there's people just like you and God has always been active there. So hold the course. He's worth it. So let's see why these people may actually be puzzled people. Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're going to read here Luke chapter 1, 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. Now, I want us to stop there because sometimes we, we just rush through things because we, I know how the story's going to go. I just want to get to the, the good parts. But I don't want us to rush too quickly here. I want us to really understand what Luke is writing here to Theophilus and to writing to us as well. These two people, Zachariah, his name, it's funny, Luke doesn't really harping, and this is what their name means, Zechariah's name, Yahweh has remembered again. Elizabeth, people are like, well, does that mean my God is the one by whom I swear, or is that my God is my fortune, either way that I'm anchored to God? And we learn some stuff. We're going to learn a few things about them in these two short verses. We learn this. We learn that these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they came from the right family. Abijah was a grandson of Aaron. Uh, he was one of uh, the priests uh, that came off there, one of 24 families that were in charge of being priests over all the nation of Israel. And so he is tied to the priesthood. And it goes way back to Aaron's great grand, or his grandson. And Elizabeth, she's tied directly to Aaron as well. So they have the right heritage. They have the right families. They grew up in the right ways. They are coming from the right family. We see that they do the right things, Right? That they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. That's the decisions they're making in their lives. They do the right type of worship, the requirements of the law when they come before. They're they're worshiping correctly, which is beautiful. And then they have the right motives in the sight of God because we know that we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that God, He doesn't look at people like man does. He looks at the inside, at the heart, not at the exterior, the interior. And so God is looking and saying, these people... Zachariah and Elizabeth, we need to know, Theophilus, you need to know that they are the right, they come from the right family, they do the right things, they worship rightly, and they have the right motives. These people are awesome. They're incredible. Let's read verse 7, though. And yet, or but, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, here's what we probably didn't do. When you read this on your own or even now, none of us went, ah! none of us had this shocking like, ah! nobody did that. I didn't hear any gasp. And a lot of that is because we're not reading with the same mindset of people in the, in the first century. 
the ancient Near East mentality. We're, we're not thinking about things like they would. We have to work hard to put ourselves into their context. But this is a shocking, shocking thing, the fact that they would have no children when they are good, good people. So when they sit there, they would go, keeping a scorecard, right family, right things, right worship, right motives, and no children, that would be crazy for them. That makes no sense at all. And so briefly, and I'm talking briefly, we, we just, I want to help us understand the context. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the framework of how all would be thinking at this point in time in their life. In Deuteronomy 28, um, I'm going to read just a little bit about it, but the context of this is that the nation of Israel, they had been enslaved in Egypt. They had been led out. They were God's people with God's promises. They had been led out through miraculous ways. Moses brings them out. They wander in the wilderness for a while, and they're getting ready to step into the promised land, into the very thing that God has for them. And as they do, Moses says, here is Deuteronomy. It's the reminder of all the things that you need to know so that you can enjoy the promises in in the promised land. They were already God's people. They already had God's promises. This is how they can enjoy the promises God has given to them. And in Deuteronomy 28, you're going to see blessings and curses. He's gathering people and he says, here's what's going to happen. You want blessings? You want to enjoy the things? 28 verse 1, he says, Moses writes this, Now it shall be for you, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I am commanding you today, that the Lord your God will put you high above all the nations on the earth. And then he goes on to this blessing seven times in four verses. You're going to be blessed whether you're in the city or out in the farmland. Your crops are going to be blessed. Your livestock is going to be blessed. Your food supply, blessed. In all areas of your life, blessed. And in verse 4, blessed will be the children. Blessed will be the children of your womb. You do the right things, you get the blessings. They did all the right things, and they didn't have the blessing. This is shocking. I'm a visual learner myself, and so the idea was this. If you were righteous, you aim for righteousness. You, you aim to image God in your life. And if you did, you got blessings. If you did not, you got curses. And so that's how they read it. They're like, okay, that's great. But what happened is they began to switch things around, going, well, we can't see if a person is righteous or not, but we can see if they have blessings. And so they began to look around at the community, and if you had the blessings, it meant you must be righteous. And if you didn't, people would begin to be like, oh, they must have some secret sin. Oh, they just must not be as holy as what I am. Oh, they must be doing something really, really wrong. It was the only explanation that they could come up with. And so people, instead of beginning necessarily to seek righteousness and allow God to take care of the blessings, begin to go, we seek the blessings trying to prove just how, how righteous we are. Not that we would ever do that in our day and age, but that's what they were doing there. And, and I think one of the most beautiful things when you, think, when you go through this is God then gives us this weird book of Job where he says, guys, here's somebody who's incredibly righteous, and yet he, it looks like he has every curse upon him. And not, it's not because of his sin. It's not because of things that he's done because we live in this broken world. And righteous people in a broken world with an active enemy sometimes experiences curses through no fault of their own. Now, we know this, and they actually knew that in their world too, but the default view was that if you lacked the blessing, then there was that secret sin in your life. It was very disgraceful, shame-filled. And so, again, you have these people, 
right families, right things, right worship, right motives, experiencing a curse. And they were old, advanced in years. So year after year after year after year after year after year, people were saying, there's something wrong with him. Something wrong with him. We know that it was filled with disgrace. Newsflash, they're going to get a son, just FYI. Um, And when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant, she says this. She says in verse 25, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me with favor. Because apparently it looked like he didn't look on me with favor for all the days coming up to this, but looked on me with favor to take away my disgrace. I've been living this so many years with this shame and disgrace over me. It was so confusing. We had done the right thing, the right ways, both in worship publicly and privately, and we never had the blessing. And so just imagine what that would be like to go through. They were puzzled people just like Theophilus. Maybe just like you this morning. That you've been having those prayers that are in step with God's uh, design, and yet you just don't see them coming true. And so you're in here and you're just feeling just confused. You're not alone in this. And I think it's really kind of Luke before he just says, hey, and they got a kid. I think it's really cool that he gives us just a, a, a glimpse of what they were doing uh, as these puzzled people without the blessing. They're just puzzled people. How do they live in the middle of that? We don't know what God is doing. We don't understand. We're confused by this. Did they just say, I'm done with everything? We've given a quick glimpse here, 8 through 12. Now, it happened that while he, that Zechariah, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people, they were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to go all the way to 12. Uh, To to help us, again, understand, at this time there was about 18,000 priests in the nation of Israel. Uh, And so each division, there were 24 different divisions. Each division had two-week duties, not back-to-back, but they'd have two different times that they would report, and there were still too many of them. And so they would cast lots, like, who gets to do this, who gets to do this, who gets to do this? And so they would show up, and sometimes they get to help, and sometimes they just kind of be on the bench just waiting for their time. Year after year after year after year after year, Zechariah would do this. I'm here to faithfully serve. I'm here to faithfully serve. I'm here to faithfully serve, even though... As they are old, they've had so many years where they are puzzled people that it is actually possible. It's possible for puzzled people who are going, I don't understand, to stay the course with the Lord. It is possible, Theophilus, even if you don't understand, even if you don't have the answers to your prayers, it's possible for people to press on. And I think that's just the beauty of testimonies, isn't it? Like it's, Luke is sharing with him a testimony. Last week we had uh, five baptisms here, uh, and we had one at Junction. And I don't know about you, but as I sat there and had the opportunity to baptize my son, which was so cool, and others, and I hear their testimony, I hear them talk about how the Lord, just how they He worked in their lives. I was encouraged. I was challenged to hear them say, like, "Hey, I used to chase things that didn't give life." I used to run after the things of the world, but I had nothing. Hey, I still struggle with people-pleasing, and I found myself just exhausted. As, as they poured out their stories, these testimonies, I'm sitting there going, wow, wow, God, this is incredible. And that's what Luke is doing for Theophilus, and that's what he's doing for us. No goody has been given to him. He's just saying, look, it is possible if you are a puzzled person, you're not alone. There have been others, and it's also possible to continue on even in the confusion. 
And I just think, how cool, Luke, how cool, God, how cool, brothers and sisters, do we have it that we get to know our testimonies and share our testimonies with others that bring incredible, like, just encouragement to those around us. So here we are, Zechariah, he's there, the lots have been cast, he's selected to burn the incense. This is, this is the highest honor that he will ever have in his life. You were not guaranteed that you'd get this once, but if you did, like, this, this was it, and you'd only have one time. And keep this in mind now, where he is going, he, he's not going into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes there once a year, not without blood. But the next room next to it, with just a curtain between him and the Holy of Holies, the, the, the place where God's presence is. This, is. this is him walking in, and this is as close as he will ever be to the physical presence of God in his mind. This puzzled person, there they are. What is he going to pray for? Isn't it, I mean, just, can you, can you understand what's happening here? He's there and he's as close to, to Yahweh as what he could ever imagine being. And we're going to look and see what is he actually praying for. As we continue to read here just a little bit more, he's going to be puzzled. Now an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Uh, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. This is something extraordinary, not ordinary. He's in doing his job, and like, oh my goodness. I'm puzzled, but for a whole other reason. And then the angel says something incredible. He says this. He says, do not be afraid, Zachariah. And can we just stop there? I put it in green on the screen. We read through these things so fast. Do not be afraid, man. Hey, priest, don't be afraid. Hey, dude, don't be afraid. No, the angel says, Zechariah, I know your name. I know you. That's incredible. This puzzled person shows up, and here Gabriel shows up and says, Zechariah, I know you. And if you're here puzzled, you just need to know. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your situation. Theophilus, he knows you. He knows where you are right now. He knows your name. That's incredible to me. Uh, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. <laughs> that begs the question, what was he praying? What was he praying for? Now, there are many times that we are unaware that there are debates in the theological realm over texts that were just like, whatever. But there's a debate over what he was praying for uh, because there's some some freedom in the text. The top three positions are this. Either he was praying for a child, that he's praying for the redemption of Israel or Messiah to come, or that he, the angel is talking about past prayers for a child. So they say that. So it's one of those things. That's the big debate that goes on. And uh, this is not a thing I'm willing to die on a hill over, but I want to share with you my thoughts, what I believe that he's praying and why. And I think it matters, not just because it's my thoughts. I think that if we really get a hold of this, I think it can help us be even more excited about the beauty of who God is. I don't think it's option one. And I don't think that for a couple reasons here. The first is this, that priest as a whole, what, what their job was, was to stand between God and the nation of Israel. 
between God and people when they bring their sacrifices. And when he's coming into this, this position to burn the incense, he is the, representation of the representative of the entire nation before God. That is his role. That's the expectation. And so I think just that alone tells us he's probably not coming in there saying, well, this is my one moment, and what I need to do with this moment is I need to use it for me. Because what else do we already know about Zechariah? The second thing is we know that he's, he's a guy who comes from the right family, who does the right things. He worships the right way with the right motives. And so I think he would, before coming in, he would go, this is my job. This is what I'm called to do before the Lord. I'm not using this opportunity to be all about me. I am here on behalf of the entire nation. You see consistency, I think. You know, he who's faithful in small things is going to be faithful with much. My children growing up, they didn't really agree with that statement. But I'm like, well, that's why you don't have much right now. I'm only entrusting you with a little until you prove yourself faithful with a little. Then I'll entrust you with a little bit more freedom and a little bit more freedom. Well, it's just not true. And now as they've gotten older, the, some of them, one of them has said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the other one may be pushing back against that still. The other thing I would say that he's not doing this is he'd be very aware of uh, Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus chapter 10. They were Aaron's oldest children, and they came in to do the very thing that he is doing, and they offered strange fire, common fire. They came in and didn't follow what God had asked them to do, and so they brought strange fire, and God said, that's not what I've asked you to be, and you are to be holy, you are to be set apart. Because of that, they died. So I don't think that he's coming in going like, okay, I know what my job is, and this is my character, and then I also know this story about what has happened to people who come in and just treat this as common and ordinary. I don't think he's coming in and saying, this is my opportunity to talk about getting a kid. And then the fourth reason that I don't think that is the evening prayers at the temple, they center around the redemption of Israel. That's the focus of those prayers, the evening prayers. And so the people who are all outside, they are praying for the redemption of Israel. Would you bring Messiah? God, we're asking, we're under oppression, would you bring Messiah? So for me, I look at this and I say, I don't think that he's coming in there and the angel says, man, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. I don't think that he is praying for a child. I think that he's praying number two. God, would you bring redemption? Would you redeem your people? Would you set us free? Would Messiah come? We've been waiting, Lord. Please bring Messiah. Please bring Messiah. Angel says, howdy. Your prayer has been heard. But I also think that we have a God who does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. I think he says, I also remember the prayers that you had, and I'm going to somehow combine those two things in a way that you could just never expect, because he does talk about a child here as you continue on in verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and in addition to that, your wife Elizabeth we know her name too. God knows her name and the disgrace that she has felt all of these years, the hopelessness that she has felt, the confusion. We're aware. He is aware. The angels are aware. You are known. You will bear a son, and you shall name him John. And, and, and I don't know. You see, here is... Zachariah, and he's, he's been praying for the community. He's praying for others, but he's also had prayers for himself. And so you just see that all of those prayers, they're not wasted. 
None of them are wasted. The prayers for others, the prayers for the nation, God hears and responds and engages with. The prayers for them, themselves and their own hurts and their own thing, God hears and he responds. Not when they want and not how they want. And so all those prayers during the puzzle time, they're not wasted before the Lord. And I think that's really a cool thing coming into this time of year. So what does God actually do, though, with these prayers? He hears them. That's great. There is some actual, it, it's amazing to me the number of times that I've been in frustrating situations and just knowing that I'm heard, how much that just calms me down and gives me peace. It's, it's amazing. I could give you illustration after illustration of times that I've been frustrated with things. And just by airing what I am saying, what I'm thinking and feeling, and knowing that I am heard, even if things don't change, I feel okay. I feel understood. But God, when he hears, I think does a little bit more than this. Let's just read here 14 through 17. Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice over his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And he, your son, he's going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And oh, by the way, it is he who will go as the forerunner before him, before Messiah, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Hey, just so you know, Zechariah, you were shocked with my presence. You're about ready to be shocked more. I know. God knows who you are. He knows who your wife is. He's heard your prayer now. He's heard your prayers before. He's going to move in an incredible way, just not when you want and how you want. You had given up because you were old and advanced in years. You just said, like, this is not going to happen. But no, God has a plan, and I'm doing it now. And what am I going to do with that? Man, this is an unexpected time for a child, but it's coming. This is, he's going to have an unexpected name. You're going to call him John. Nobody in your family has that name, but you're going to call him John, meaning God is gracious. And that son of yours that's, that's unexpected in time and unexpected in name, he's going to have an unexpected impact. He's going to turn the hearts of many back to the Lord. And, oh, he's also going to have an unexpected mission. He is going before Messiah. And we see in all that unexpectedness, we see a God who is in control and at work. And all throughout the book of Luke and all throughout the book of Acts, we see that God is at work in unexpected ways, through unexpected people, at unexpected times. And you see puzzled people all over the place. And so Theophilus is like, man, the first story and then all the way throughout, man, I don't know, can I continue to trust? I need reassurance. Let me give you testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of God working in unexpected ways through unexpected people at unexpected times. I mean, you think about Jesus, he had the unexpected teaching about the, who God is in the Old Testament and the law. You've heard it said this, but I say this. You see, um, <laughs> he has unexpected that Jesus would have the authority and the power to forgive sins. That was confusing. It's unexpected. You would see as well uh, in Luke chapter 8, it's unexpected that Jesus has this power over, over the natural world, over the spiritual world, over disease and death. Incredible, in just a few verses, you're like, whoa, this is unexpected how much power this Jesus has. He comes on an unexpected mission, yes, to liberate Israel and the world, but not to the Romans, but from the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. That's not what they were waiting for, but that's why he came, 
with an unexpected mission. And how was he going to accomplish that? In an unexpected way, through his death on the cross and resurrection. None of that was what they were thinking or hoping. Theophilus, you need to know in this time of discouragement that our God is aware of you. You need to know that he works at an unexpected time, unexpected places, unexpected people in an unexpected way, and he has unexpected power. You just need to know that. Stay the course. Look at these stories. Stay the course. Think about how helpful that would actually be. Not only for Theophilus, but maybe for us today. That God has always been at work in unexpected ways at unexpected times. And he would give him an example of people who, even when they were in the middle of their greatest puzzlement, they continued to trust he's going to do something. And will continue to honor him and pursue him even when I don't understand. Even when my reasonable prayers, like my reasonable Christmas list, when they go, they feel stalled out and they go unfulfilled. Encouragement to press on. Because here's the deal. We have a God who's always aware. He's always at work. He can always be trusted. And who will one day return at an unexpected time. And he's going to do another unexpected work when he makes all things right. When there is no more death, there's no more tears, no more sorrow. And it's going to happen in an unexpected time, in an unexpected way. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. I just want to remind us, this is the joy candle that we, we lit today. This is, that's joyful. We're just starting off the season of looking like, look at this God who is, who is starting off through this baby born at an unexpected time, in an unexpected place, in an unexpected way, doing unexpected things to, to die a death that I deserve and you deserve to free us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Two of the three of those have been accomplished right now. The third is coming. And when he died on the cross, I think this is amazing. Luke makes the case all the way throughout that when Jesus died on the cross, that was not defeat, but it was victory in a very unexpected way. And it was victory for Theophilus. It was victory for all of the nation of Israel. It was victory for the entirety of the world, for you and for me. That one act that Jesus took the penalty that was mine and yours, and he took the full force of it on the cross so that you and I could be restored and be brought back into a relationship with the Lord. And he only asks us to say thank you, to respond to that gracious work that he has done. That's unexpected. And that's what we celebrate, though. This Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that God hears puzzled people's prayers. And it's a beautiful thing that I hope brings us encouragement. And I would love to continue through this story. I would love to continue through all of Luke, but we would be here for quite some time, and that would not be a great thing for everybody. So I'm going to wrap it up simply with this, that God does hear puzzled people's prayers. I hope that that brings you some encouragement. I hope that brings you uh, peace. I hope that it helps us that, like, man, we're not alone in our puzzlement if you're in that season right now of how we even help others who are walking alongside, that they have the freedom to say, I'm struggling right now, that we don't reprimand them and say, like, you should never struggle. No, instead, we should invest and remind them of who God is, that he does know who they are. He does know what they're walking through. He is at work in unexpected ways at unexpected times. And they may not see that healing that they're hoping for until he comes back. There's no guarantee that things are going to go ever in this life how we think. But we 
can trust that He is coming back and He will make all things right. And so application, as you get ready to, to head out of here, just a few things. I would encourage you, pray. They're not wasted. I encourage you, pray for others. Are you aware of what their needs are around you? Pray big for those who are around you because those prayers don't fall on deaf ears. And pray for yourself. You ha- we all have needs. We all have hurts. We're coming into the season that we get so excited about it. Many times when families come together, we're like, why were we so excited? Because all these old past hurts come up and we're sitting there. We don't know how to respond. And like, we just need somebody to be reminded and, and, and tell us, I'm praying that you would experience God's peace in a very chaotic place around the holidays. And maybe that's what you need. Invite somebody into that so that they can pray for you. The second thing is I've been encouraged just to share. We just see the power of the testimony here through Zachariah and Elizabeth. Their story is right in line with Theophilus. Share your story. Share with others how you've seen God at work. And also be okay sharing like, man, I'm actually puzzled in this moment. I don't understand why he's not moving in a way that I would want him to. It's okay to sit there and be vulnerable with our family and with our friends to bring encouragement. Share your story. Know your story. Share your story. And the last, I did encourage you. This week, grab a hold of Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 238. And as you read, I want to challenge you to read it through the eyes of Theophilus. I'm struggling. I don't know. Is it worth pressing on? Try to have that mindset as you read through and see if you can see what Luke is doing, what God is doing through this gospel to bring great encouragement. See if it doesn't give you fresh eyes for this incredible story during this incredible time of year where we do celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that uh, you are at work always, Lord. There's, there's never a space where you are not. Father, there's, there's never a situation that we enter into alone. I pray that we would be so keenly aware of that this Christmas, Lord. I pray that, that you would uh, show up in unexpected ways in our lives, Lord, whether it's through friends sharing their stories or whether it's through us to others by us sharing our stories. Lord, I pray that the men and women in this room and the children in this room, that we would pray boldly for you to do great things for others and for ourselves, Lord. And I pray if we are in this situation where we're just puzzled, we don't understand why you're not responding how we want and when we want, that we'd be okay knowing that you are in control, that you are active because we see it time and time again in Scripture of you showing up unexpected ways, unexpected times, and doing beautiful things. Father, I pray that we'd be greatly encouraged. I pray that as we step into this season, while we maybe have our Christmas list, that we'd be most excited over the fact that you loved us so much. You gave your one and only son so that anybody who would believe in him would trust him, say thank you to him, would not perish, but would have eternal life. Thank you that our debt of sin has been eradicated, that we never again have to worry about our standing with you, that we are part of your family, that we are fully loved both now and forever. Lord, we love you. Amen.